Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Eleanor and I spoke with Farah Storr, who is the editor of Cosmopolitan UK. Farah spoke about the influence of men's magazines at the beginning of her career, as well as how she completely revamped Cosmo when she arrived in 2015, which included getting rid of columns and bringing back long form. It's a really interesting episode and we hope you enjoy it. So we are at Hearst today with Farah Storr, who has been editor of Cosmo UK since 2015. Thank you for having us, Farah. We're, we're thrilled to be here today. Um, can you start by talking to us a little bit about your entry into journalism? I know that from looking at your resume, you've had so many jobs, and I know that you said yourself that you kind of wanted to switch every 18 months on purpose to kind of because you loved the kind of thrill. Well, I needed to earn more money, is the (laughs) truth. That's why I really moved jobs uh, so many times. Uh, Yeah, so, um, I mean, God, I I didn't actually know that you could get a job in journalism. So I grew up in in, um, Salford in Manchester, Mm. Um, had an Asian father. So the relevance of what I'm saying that is he was um, very strict very keen on his sons and daughters being highly academic. Getting a proper job. <laughs> Getting a proper job, um, being a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, um, and, and there weren't really any other options. And so whilst I used to read magazines all the time, so just 17 smash hits, um, I didn't actually know that you could end up working on one. And actually it was only when my sister, um, who became a lawyer, she did the dutiful thing and became a lawyer, um, to please my dad, she won a competition in Moore magazine to, I think it was to go on a date with a male model. And she came down to London, she saw this whole new world, and then she came back to Manchester and, and she said to me, you wouldn't believe it, but you can get a job as a writer. Yeah. And in fact, um, when a job as a junior writer came up on Moore magazine, she quit her job in the law, um, where I think she was probably on about 25k a year, to take this job on Moore magazine, which I think was 11k. Um, and she did it, and so she 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 paved the the way for me really. Um, and now she's a novelist. And now she writes novels. So now she's left journalism, um, and she writes novels. Your dad must be thrilled. <laughs> well, all, and, and you know, my my brother directs Tawi, actually made in Chelsea now. Um, oh, wow. So nobody became. Um, Nobody got a, in inverted commas, proper job in the end. Um, and, and so that was it. So so I, I came down to London, I studied at King's College, and I spent my whole time at uni. I was very strategic about what university I went to, because I always wanted to go to Oxford, didn't get in. And so after that, I was like, well, if I want to be a journalist, I need to be in London. And so all through university, I, I, I did bits of work experience, which led to tiny bits of freelance. Um, you know, I was a person that used to do Vox Pops outside, um, oh, yes. outside Shepherd's Bush Empire for Q magazine and none of it paid of course oh, they may have, actually they may have paid me £50 I think uh, which was a lot of money to me and it, that just meant that by the time I graduated and a job came up as a I think it was a features assistant on Woman and Home I was in a pretty good place in, in which to get the job and, and, and it, it kind of started from there really and I was wondering what in, is the best kind of way to categorize the kind of magazines that you've worked on is is women's magazine a useful term or how do you what how, what's the best way to I don't to... think it is that useful a term anymore I think it was when I was coming through because yeah. it was I wasn't sure what I wanted to do and I knew that I was interested in women and women's issues and when I say women's issues you know just women's lives women's sex lives women's relationships and so what you did was you either kind of went into newspaper journalism 
or you went into magazines it was really and actually I always wanted to work weirdly on a men's magazine even though I was interested in women I always thought um, a couple of years on a men's magazine would be really interesting for me um, that's interesting what? is it because there was a kind of a subconscious feeling that that was more highbrow in a way because I know that some some men's magazine because they a lot more focus on long form they do sometimes yeah that's that's right so I so my sister and my now husband and my brother-in-law all worked at Loaded in the 90s and so Loaded at the time of course it became a very different magazine but at that time and that's when I was at university college actually and then university it was seen as this brilliant I mean you know you'll probably remember it, this brilliant magazine Just, it did not, not that old you're not that old <laughs> yeah, okay. no, no, I, but, but it was okay. it was trailblazing but it I was remember. trailblazing it was like that and FHM and yeah, yeah. that's yeah, right that and, it, and it was all the what my husband did and what my brother-in-law did was the gonzo stuff which was throwing journalists in and, and, and they were part of the story and women's magazines didn't do it and I felt very frustrated with that um, so even though I I thought I'd probably end up on a glossy women's magazine um I always thought a men's magazine probably I would feel slightly more fulfilled because the truth is women's magazines, every time I've been on one, and this isn't right or wrong, um, the thing about women's magazines is the magazine had a voice, it had its own voice and writers had to subscribe to that voice and I always found that very frustrating because I've always believed writers are paid for their voice and actually what's the point in, in, in creating a voice or subscribing to a voice which isn't your own? And, and, and that's why I think when I came to Cosmo, I was like, forget about any sort of Cosmo voice. I want lots of different divergent voices and points of view. I don't think actually um, magazines should, should be biased in, in any way. Um, you should just throw everything in there and, and, and let the reader decide on and make their own kind of judgments. So I think actually Cosmo now, as it is, is in many ways based on... Um, the, the, the kind of principles of, of the early men's magazines. And you brought back long form and a focus on, on yeah. investigative journalism and that is a big, well certainly from when I worked at GQ, their long form is kind of their jewel of that's the magazine. That's it, yeah, that's it. And I, I think, you know, when I came to Cosmo, um, because Cosmo had actually always done very... Um, it was Cosmo was never about sex. When I got the job and I started looking into... I, I was going to ask, at that period in the 90s, the kind of high... When the men's magazines were in, like, the high-loaded period, right. what were women's magazines doing? They were... Time? Well, they were aping it. You know, they looked at the culture, and, of course, it was Ladette culture. Yeah. So, actually, if you look at Cosmo in the 90s, it was all about... <coughs> which, you know, is very different to today. It was all about going out, shagging... Um, drinking as much as, as, as the men and that right. was the culture at the time you know mm. th- that is what it was like so really the 90s um, I think to women's magazines in general when I look back at the 90s they're not my favourite period in women's magazines were you um, reading Cosmo? because you no, didn't mention it in your no 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 I, do you know what I was what was I reading then? I think in the 90s I was reading a lot of music magazines again I liked a lot of the music writers um, I thought if you could make reviews of singles sound really interesting um, and make them come alive. I think a lot of brilliant journalists have come through through that route. So mm. I was reading things like Q and um, Uncut magazine I used to love. Um, but yeah, so Cosmo it was very different then. And actually Cosmo from kind of the 80s and 90s became known for being about sex. It had, you know, its sex positions. But it was always about, when you went back to the 60s, when it was hugely successful, it was about career. And it was always about... There's, um, a phrase that the American editor of Cosmo, who was very famous, that's it, yeah. She came up with this phrase, which I still don't quite understand, um, called the Mouse Burger, and that was the Cosmo woman. And essentially, 
it was who she was, which was, you are a gutsy young woman, you've probably come from a small town, you've come to the city to make it big and to make your own money. And I think through women making their own money, um, the hope was that they could, you know, they could earn money like a man, and then they could go and have go out and have sex like like a man as well. So it became about sex, Cosmo, but it's really about being a self-made woman. That's what the magazine is. And so, about. when did the British edition launch? It launched in. I we, we were wondering, now. is this the first one? No, it was early. I think it was nineteen seventy-seven. I okay. think. I think it was the year before I was born. I think it was a bright red cover. Um, and it sold, I think it sold out by lunchtime. So, like, I think it was about 300,000 copies they had done, and it sold out by 12 o'clock. So it was really, you know, and that's because in America it had been trailblazing and everybody knew about this this magazine, um, which was quite controversial. Um, and so by the time it arrived on British shores, it, women were desperate for it. So just to go back slightly, did you end up working on any men's magazines? No, no, no never happened for me. Um, Why was that? Did you did you try? Never really saw the opportunities, and I think sometimes when you um, when you're on the journey in women's magazines, I think, and, and this is true, you can get pigeonholed, and people can think that is what you do. Mm. So I think I know I applied for a job in GQ, <laughs> uh, and yeah, didn't get the job. Um, what, what and was I think the job? it was I was I think it was commissioning editor. Um, but it was also looking after the GQ awards as well. Right. Um, and I'd always wanted to work for Dylan. You know, I heard he was tough, but he was fair. He yes. was a good, you know, an excellent editor. Um, but no, never happened. And so I just kind of continued in, in women's magazines, just moving every couple of years. Um, one, like I said, because, and I always say this to my team, you know, you don't earn a lot of money in journalism. You never will. Um, so you've really got to love it. But actually, it's helpful at the beginning of your career. Um, so that you earn more money and also I think you start to see what lots of different leadership looks like so mm. actually by the time you become a boss I think having worked in lots of different places was actually very useful for me because I saw what good leadership looked like I saw what um, kind of creative leadership looked like and I saw what bad leadership looked like and I think that informed hopefully what sort of an editor I've become. So what was your path then? Where did you go from? Into? So I went to I went to Woman and Home as Features Assistant and then I went um, to Good Housekeeping. So I kind of went, you know, I, I stayed in the older women's magazine market because those were the only jobs around. I went to Good Housekeeping as Features Writer. Um, I then went to a magazine called Eve Magazine um, to be Senior Writer. After that, I went to Glamour as Deputy Features Editor. How old are you at this point? I think I was about 27. So that's a good title to have. But that's it, and so that was the difference for me. It was like when Glamour came up, and I felt terrible because I'd only been at Eve five months, but the job came up, and it was the natural next step for me. And it was a big glossy, and it was at Condé Nast. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that was, was a big Eve deal. What magazine? Eve magazine was a bit like... It was before you got to Good Housekeeping. It was a general interest women's magazine, okay. but the editor, Sarah Kramer, who... Like um, who it, uh, I don't think she was red, but she came through but the men's magazine. It was magazine. a similar magazine. Like it was like red, exactly. Yeah. It was like red. Um, but she was famous because she'd come through, I think, FHM and the men's mag. So actually, yeah. Eve, even though I wasn't there very long, it had a kind of naughty sensibility. It rattled... Um, its readers a little bit. It was it was funny and punchy, and so I, and so you know that was probably the closest I got to working for a men's mag editor. And then after um, Glamour, um, I was twenty seven, and I just decided I'd never stopped working. 
I'm a worker, I work very hard, I work very long hours. Um, and I wanted some kind of time abroad. I'd never done that year abroad because my you know, parents were keen on the idea. Um, and a job came up as features editor on, I think it was New Woman magazine in Australia. Yes. And so... Um, yes, and this is your major career failure, I remember. I yeah, well, it wasn't at New Woman, actually. It was at another magazine, oh. which I can't name. Um, but I, So we went, so me and my husband... Um, Why can't you name it, as in, for... Just, just because right. I, I think it was a difficult office environment for me. In Australia as but well. In Australia, right. yeah. And, um, and actually, I think I wasn't good enough at that job. So sorry, I'm going back. So I went to New Woman. Then I went to this, the, this other magazine, uh, which is a fashion magazine. Um, and there, there were a couple of things on this fashion magazine. One was it was notoriously a revolving door of people. Mm. But I knew that when I, when, when I went for the job. It was as features director. Um, but also, I just wasn't ready. I just wasn't ready to be a features director, I think. So how long had you been a features editor before that? Oh, not very long. Maybe eight months, oh, eight that, nine yeah. months. And what it is the distinction enough. in those jobs between features director and features editor? I mean, sometimes. Features director's running the whole, hmm. the whole well of the but magazine. Fe- but features editors can be as well. And I suppose it's to denote experience a lot of the time. Yeah. I think sometimes when you want to keep people, you call them features so director. But there isn't a features editor and a director often. They've just been Not unless promoted. it is a huge yeah. team. And I think... Nowadays, most most senior features editors get to get, be called directors. Yeah. It's a bit like the editor and the editor-in-chief, and I suppose features director, I have always thought, um, whilst they look after all of the features well, they're also a very senior person in the office, in a way that features editor perhaps is just over there, mm. um, is just over the features. I see that they've got quite a big role in the brand and the vision. That's it, they go out, they do meetings, um, they're senior, you know, if mm. there are... Um, if the editor's not in, the features director is often the person, uh, apart from if the deputy's not in, that you'll say, can you man the office, can you see what's going on? So you're still in your late 20s when you got the features director job? So I was 30, I think. I was 30 when I got the features director's job. And I what, what just... Happened? Well, it was... I think I went in thinking I was... I think there was arrogance on my part. I think, honestly, when I look back now, I think... I thought, oh, I'm a Brit in Australia, and you know, and actually, I remember my my copy just used to be. It would come back like a blooded rag. It was just covered in red pen, and I, and I was like, okay. Um, and it was the first time actually I'd had such heavy, heavy, heavy editing. So who was um, editing you? Uh, I think it was the deputy editor was was editing me. It was it was an acting deputy editor who was a super senior woman actually, and actually I really respected. Uh, we didn't see eye to eye. We didn't get on, but I respected her, mm. and I think that's the best sometimes you can hope for. You don't have to like people, but I respected her. Um, and so she would tell me what I was doing wrong, and I think it's one of those things. It's like the difference between a slog and a grind. It just felt like a slog. It never got better. You know, usually if you're getting something wrong. You, it feels hard but you feel challenged but you can see movement, you can see that you're getting better and I think at that job I just didn't think I was getting any better and I think sometimes and, and I think what happened with that job was when you can't see it getting any better it then starts to colour everything if you're thinking, you know, I was thinking about the job when I left work, it was the first thing I thought about in the morning and after about a year I just thought, you know, I remember sitting on, we had this lovely um, this lovely apartment on the beach and just sitting on, on the beach just crying because um, I couldn't understand what what um, what I couldn't get right and, and so I left the job in the end because I, I just thought you know I can't I, I can't see that I am getting better here and I think if you can't see a way to get better 
then um, and I think they'd run I think they'd lost faith with me at that point as well what I was think. the problem with your writing would you say was it your would, do you think your writing wasn't good enough I think I um, I think yeah it's very hard to know I think it goes back to again there was a style there mm. and actually I remember the first piece that I edited for them I um, it was about some women who it was about a road in Canada where all these women were going missing and I remember I got the piece, and I thought, when I read the piece which came in, I thought, this isn't very good. And I remember being really proud, because I kind of, um, I edited it, um, and and I thought, um, I mean, it'd be interesting to read it now, I thought I made it much more kind of like a, you know, my naive arrogance, I thought I made it more like a supplement, I thought I, might, thought I made it more writerly. Mm. Um and of course, that wasn't the style of the magazine, so mm. it came back. And, and so I think probably what it was is they wanted something we just didn't see eye to eye. And so if you fundamentally have different um, values, I suppose, to to the brand you're working for, maybe it was my fault it was never going to get better because I wanted this product to be something that it wasn't and it wasn't going to change um, just because I'd arrived. And that's probably right. Um, have you seen over your career a... A kind of cultural shift in in the way in the environment of women's magazines you know how do people behave differently to each other now than they used to well I never and obviously this is not a well I know but one is aware of the stereotypes and you know the, the devil was Prada thing and stuff yeah. like that has that has that shifted I've never had that I've never experienced that in, in one of my early jobs I had it a little bit mm-hmm. with the editor but it was never devil wears Prada I mean I, I think because I've never worked on a high fashion magazine right. Um, I've never experienced it, but I have experienced very big egos and and editors who perhaps are a little unkind with the more junior members of of the team. And I do, you know, I remember editors, um, you know, going into beauty sales. You know, we used to have these things, and it's all very different here at Hearst. Everybody in the entire building gets to go to beauty sales. What is a beauty sale? Oh, beauty sales. So beauty sales are kind of famous in, in women's magazines, which it's when all the products which are tested so they've been used um you will know you're smiling well because it's literally like it's carnage horrible the vogue ones because you're literally fighting and scratching yes you see women at their worst you know so what it's all the the products that have come in and are they they actually sold or are they like two pounds they're sold and then the money goes to charity but what used to happen um and it's good this doesn't anymore is is the team would go first and then the rest of the building would be invited. Okay. Now, Hearst actually does a really good thing now where everybody um, from the whole team is invited, but, mm. um, you know, and it's, it's outside. There's a structure to a it, which there never yeah. was. And the, But there used to be a horrible hierarchy, and I'll never forget one editor. She used to go in before all of the team and cream off all the best stuff, and I'm talking, would come out shamelessly with bags and bags of products, and so you'd be sat there as a junior person thinking, and they well, don't know, need it. If they're that they senior. don't need it. Yeah. They're probably earning a lot more money than me, and and so things like that. Um, uh, actually, there was only one editor that did that. To be completely so fair, so you last in the beauty sales now. Okay. But uh, I don't go. Oh, you don't go. To yeah, them. I don't go. Uh, Is there any? Really, I mean, this may be a very naive question, but any discussion of the kind of ethics of taking a lot of this stuff free you know if you're if, if it seems that like this is a substantial part of life is what happens to all the freebies you know that you get from these these companies is that is there any discussion about the the ethics of that well i think whether it's kind of affecting your editorial package i don't like think it does i mean the interesting thing about cosmo is that we are mainly it's always been this way 
<clears throat> we we make as much from ads as we do from consumer. Right. Okay. So you so we're not primarily an ad an ad model. Um, we have both, and actually that's why I think the brand is very interesting because you know relying on both is probably the best way. It's what I had at Women's Health as well, and so with that. So comes, what's the other stream of revenue that you're talking about? Oh, ads it's con- it's consumers, so that right. could be events or it's your um, your cover price. Right, so sales. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. And then your other one, of course, it is the ad model. Yeah. And and the dream, or I have always found the dream, is different on different magazines, but um, the dream on general magazines yeah. like Women's Health which I edited, and Cosmo, is that you get from both. And so with that, of course, has to come um, editorial autonomy. Has to. Um, So I have to say, I mean, again, it goes back to this stereotype of women getting free handbags and doesn't happen on Cosmo. People always laugh. I do not get sent anything. Right. Um, I got sent a balloon the other day, actually, which <laughs> cheered me up immensely. But but I don't. And actually, that is, I think that's right, because I think it keeps you in the job for the right reasons. Is there a policy about that? About yeah, you? yeah. So so anything anything that you get sent, you have to document. Right. You There's like a... Oh, it's not called a gift registry, but but it's but you basically have to register sure. what what you've been given. But um, yeah, Cosmo doesn't really happen. It, it's we're a features magazine, okay. so you know we have a lot of beauty, and those products are tested. Um, by the way, um, sure, yeah, yeah. So so yeah, I've never seen it to go back to your original question that mean girl mentality, but it exists. And so one of the things that I like to do, only if they're the best person for the job, obviously is I like to have um, I like to have offices where there's a real mix of people in there. Um, Do you have any you men know? working? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hired a lot of men when I first started. They, but that's because they were right for the job, I have to say. Um, what, are they, yeah. what are they doing? Are they design they, they, yeah, design, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, would we think about a male writer? Well, we have loads of male voices deliberately in the magazine. It's always been something that I've been really keen on. Um, and Cosmo readers are very interested in, 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 in men's take on particularly what's going on in culture right now. Um, you think if women work at write for men's magazines? Then yeah, of course. I mean, the scholarship we've got out at the moment is open to men and women. Um, so to anyone, of course. Uh, the Cosmo houses that we do, so we house um, young men or women who want to work in the creative industries. So everything we do is open to men as well. I mean, it, so I find personally it does do something to... The temperature of the office. Right. Yeah. Mm. It's yeah. just a different atmosphere. I find it's a very pleasant one. And talking about the the atmosphere of the office when you first joined Cosmo, yeah. I read that there was kind of an eighty percent exodus <laughs> yeah. of the yeah. team, which it's recently happened with Vogue as well right. after and it happens. Sandra Shulman. Um, so yeah, how, how did is this is does that happen quite a lot in women's magazine versus men's magazines, and how did you? I don't deal think with it's it? a I don't think it is a it's a gendered thing. I think what happens is somebody new comes in. Um, I mean, I, I can only speak from from my point of view. I mean, in, in the instance with Cosmo, they were a great team. They'd all been there a long time. They were a great team, but obviously the job that we had to do at Cosmo was we had to. Um, get millennials looking at it again and so we were in a tricky situation we had to get it back to being the number one um, women's magazine brand media brand and so and I I tried to do this with everyone so there was an honesty I had to be honest with them which is look what you've been doing is is there's nothing wrong with it but we've got to change it and we hadn't we didn't have very long in which to do it and I I remember saying to everyone it's going to get really tough and it will feel tough and that goes back to the grind again but I suppose I wanted people to feel that even though it felt, you know, like they were wading through treacle, 
that there was light and and I think people not everybody's up for that you know and I think you've really got to be when a magazine or any business goes through a period of change you've got to be up for the challenge and you have to see it as a challenge um, and I think so I did not get rid of anyone which is always a subtext mm. people like did you sack anyone I absolutely didn't and they were a great team but it's probably quite useful though to be able to then start well it's good to start well you know I kept like seven there were seven people from the original team who are brilliant they're absolute stars Um, yes it's useful because you get your um, you get your team around you although I only employed one person that I'd worked with before Um, everybody else is completely new to me so yeah it's um, it's useful but you know I would have been happy for the old team to have stayed as well but do you think there is an issue sometimes particularly in magazines glossy magazines because they are people love working at, at them obviously the lifestyle is incredibly comfortable and the work is great the people are there for 20 years maybe more do you think there's ever an issue with people kind of outstaying their work I and mean, then it means the, the brand can't evolve and there isn't enough new blood coming in or do you think that is what keeps it successful having people that have kind of mapped its progress across the years well it can work in either way can't it because I think magazines by their nature they are tribal things and people work for the magazine you know people are they, they, they are loyal to Esquire they are loyal to Cosmo and of course what comes with loyalty to a brand is you give it everything and so some of those people who've been there for 20 years who am I to say they should move on I mean obviously you have to make way for new talent coming up of course um, can you become too old for a magazine I mean if it's a, you know, a magazine that has <laughs> well, a certain target you were mentioning trying to get younger yeah. younger readers. Well, it's hard. I mean, and, and in fact, the readers we wanted to get and now have got were millennials. I mean, I'm not a millennial. Yeah. I mean, I've personally, and it's a personal thing, because some some editors have been at a magazine for 20 years and they're still doing, like Dylan is a great example, yeah. still mm. doing a brilliant job. Because I think these people are very self-aware that the minute you start to become complacent, you've got to shake it all up again. I mean, it's why a lot of editors do redesigns all the time. Um, You know, after about every four or five years, they'll redesign, and it's to shake it up. But also, I think it's to shake themselves up. Um, I've always had a thing which is four years is enough in a job for me. I've never stayed anywhere longer than four years. you've got a year left. I've got got (laughs) six months left. (laughs) I've got six months left. Um... Because for me, and actually, it's like politics, isn't it? And it's the same in the ape world. After four years, you start to get challenged by the other apes. You've had your time. And so I think for me, four years... There'll be a showdown. (laughs) There'll either be a showdown or, for me, I'm literally spent after four years. I've given it everything. Mm. And so I've always felt that four years is a really good time for you to perhaps move on from a brand because you've been giving it everything. Is that what um, you're thinking about now? No, I'm not, actually, because I love Cosmo, <laughs> so I need to stop saying it. Um, yes, but then Cosmo has... this podcast, they might get a bit of concern. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm always saying, I'm like, four years, no one should stay longer than four years. And, um, and can I ask, who are, who are your readers then? Because you said you had a, an objective to get younger readers. What, right. was the, what was the... Who was reading the magazine when you arrived? And who, who were you hoping to get readers? So, when I arrived, I think the average age was 20 two or three but actually when we looked at the data it was a lot of kind of 16 year olds and a lot of um, Cosmo loyalists who are in their 40s and 50s and actually what was missing was um, those career girls those mouse burgers who were the kind of late 20s early 30s they were missing from from the scene Um, and of course they're very difficult to get hold of because with with, you know the digital revolution they're all there 
So, uh, and was there was it London or or, or provincial? Would, did you have a split in terms of uh, in, in terms of who we would want? Yeah, um, or, and who was reading it? Well, who was reading it? It's become much more. There's more of a London readership okay. now, but we've always been. I think that's the thing of Cosmo. It's one of those magazines. It's both. It has to be urban, but it's also got to be. It, it's mass. Right. So that's again why I've always been kind of. I mean, some editors would go, that's why you need to have a voice of a magazine. Whereas I say, actually, that's why you don't need a voice. You should have divergent voices because you're trying to reach so many different types of, of, of women. Um, so, yeah, so that's who we were after. But I think the thing is, and, and one of the things that I did when I came in, I mean, it wasn't, um, it wasn't rocket science, but, you know, I got rid of a lot of the sacred cows, which had made us really famous, so the naked centerfold and the... Um, uh, the columns went. The, 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 the agony, yeah, the columns went yeah. because I thought in an online world where everybody's got an opinion and basically a lot of journalism, excellent journalism online, is columns. I didn't think perhaps that there was a place for that in the magazine and I thought there was a place for um, long-form investigative journalism mm. because papers were suffering so nobody was really doing that anymore. Um, nobody else was really offering it for young women. Um, and also I thought the landscape, the culture at the moment for young women is just so interesting. So we became, uh, yeah, we became much more, I think before Cosmo perhaps was more about beauty, we became much more, we went back to what we were originally, which was um, features base. And the job of my writers, all my writers, beauty writers, uh, the fashion team and features is to you know, look what's going on in, in, in culture and then come back to work and make sense of what's how, happening. How big is the team? It's 24. Okay, and how much of it is written in-house and how much by freelance? Most of it in-house. Yeah. Most of it is in-house. Um, so you can imagine that takes a lot of shuffling around because mm. some of these investigations can take, like one of them took six months recently, they can take yeah. a really long time. But... I just feel it, it, it is worth it. Um, but they have to they have to juggle that with their day job sure. as well. Um, we're always looking for new writers. I mean, I'm always putting on my Instagram. You know, Cosmo is kind of open for anybody to pitch us an idea because actually most investigations or, or most things which are happening in, in society, we don't know about them. You know, there could be something going on in, in I was going to say Rotherham, or of course there was something going on in Rotherham that we don't know about. So the reason I open up Cosmo to all of our readers where anyone can pitch us a story is because a most people know brilliant stories in their communities and also I've always thought that if you can generally write a brilliant editor can work with you to make it into something. Do people personally com- um, pitch to you and have you yeah. ever personally commissioned? Yeah all the time all the time. And you still make a kind of a, um, a concerted effort to write as well you know you interviewed um, Tess recently yes. I mean how much is that because as you get higher and higher at the top is what happens as the what happens with a lot of editors they kind of become further away from the thing they love most right. at the start which is writing is that a battle for you is that something that I think well you? it helps with costs if I'm helping muck in <laughs> I mean that is the truth you know right. went in and, and you know I think I'm not telling people what they don't already know magazine budgets are, are you know I mean are, we have we have good budgets but they're they're hard to work with now so have they contracted during the time you've been oh budget? like since like I mean the things I couldn't tell you when I first started out because I wasn't dealing with budgets. Right. But, but actually, I mean, in, in the time you've been in the helmet, Cosmo. No, 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 no. We, okay. We've been we've been fine because actually we our numbers went up so much that we've been able to, you know. Has Glamour's kind of decline helped your 
readership is that kind of it's helped a sad readership. moment or no it's not it, it, it well it's not yes it's a sad moment for it's, the industry because you thought about yeah. it in terms of the industry and also because the less magazines you have on newsstand the harder it's going to get to get people to the newsstand so um, and remember i worked at glamour for a long mm. time so i was really um really sad Joe and was it was an ahead editor. of cosmo for a while and that's it and, and so it was case. very difficult because actually with glamour and who knows, I don't know the ins and outs of, of, of what happened with Glamour, but, you know, we lowered our price. Uh, we were £4 something. Glamour was always £2. Cosmo lowered its price. We went to a pound. We became bigger than... We, I mean, we became huge. And so it will have had some effect on that decision. And so, yes, yes you, feel, you feel terrible. Um, I mean, that wouldn't have been the only reason, of course. It may have had some something to do with it. It wouldn't have been the only reason why Condé Nast decided to, to close Glamour. Mm. And, of course, that... And what's happening in the US is a bigger conversation. Um, what is your circulation? It's three, just over three hundred thousand. Okay. So it's still big. I mean, it's you know, I think the whole thing of magazines are dying. It's you know, I do roll my eyes sometimes because it's just not true. I mean, that is a lot of people yeah. who are choosing to spend money when most of the stuff they read is free. Um, so it, it's um, yeah, it's very sad. It's very sad when any of them close. Can we talk about some of the features you you sent over? Mm. I mean, what are your what are your sort of objectives with these these longer pieces that you're running? The they all have different objectives, but I suppose the main objective for everything in Cosmo, particularly with all of the features, is to make. I mean, it sounds a cliche, but cliches are cliches for a reason, I suppose. Um, is just to make our consumers see a different side to to a story. I think I think that's the job of any journalist. Um, I think you know we live in such a such an echo chamber sometimes, which we we willfully put ourselves in. By the way, you know, I mean, even I do it on my Twitter. I look, you know, I, I'm only following people whose views of the world um, chime with mine, and that's a really dangerous thing to do. And so I think with Cosmo, the whole point has always been let's think differently about something. Here's a different message, um, and 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 of course to have balance, but. I think if you can get somebody to change their mind about something through journalism, I think it's really effective. I mean, it's not out yet, but um, we've just put to bed an, an issue, our issue where um, our writer, my features director, um, went kind of, she did the touring with Jordan Peterson. She went to his gigs. Oh, gosh. And, well, exactly. So your reaction <laughs> is, is exactly that. And, and actually, when we were talking about it, I said, look, we need to do something on Jordan Peterson. Um and I said, because the reality is he is selling out stadiums. Mm. And so it is not all madness what this guy is talking about. In fact, actually, a lot of it is not. There, are, Of course, there are elements which are problematic. But um, I said, you know, these are, there are women that go to his, that, you know, go to Except the arenas. my female friends have found him right. very persuasive. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. So even the language you're using, he's persuasive. Well, he, you know, so, so that's the mindset a lot of our readers will have is, oh, my God, he's a racist, he's a misogynist. But... Look at who's going to his um, gigs. It's mm. our boyfriends. It's our. Um, it might you know. It's our, our fathers-in-law. So he has a huge, huge following. And so, for me, we have to understand what is the story because whether you like it or not, what he's saying, um, people in your lives are going to be affected by it. So she went. She went. Um, she she went to a couple of his um, performances. And uh, she spoke to him, but it wasn't about um, Dr. Peterson. It was about the young men. And actually, she spent time with... Actually, they weren't all young men. They were middle-aged men. And, and, and what, what, why were they there? And so, actually, it, the, I think the cover line we've got for it is, 
are our men in pain? Mm. Because the story is not about Dr. Peterson. The, the story is about what has this man, why has this gangly intellectual from Toronto become this hero to all of these men? And, you know, and, and that's my job as an editor is to go find out what it is um, and, 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 and what we've come to or, or what we've seen because we don't come to any conclusions is men are in a lot of pain right now and people don't want to listen. And so here is a man who is telling them, well, this is what you do to protect yourself. And, and it's, it's a brilliant piece. In reading, it sounds really interesting, in reading the pieces you sent over, it seemed there was a kind of strong first-person element in a lot of them, often a, a kind of, maybe gone to is the wrong word, but you know, the, the woman would go and meet someone who was looking for a sex or rent arrangement or something like that. Yes. How do you draw the... I mean, is that is that an obligatory thing, to have that kind of experiential element in it? So, for example, on the piece on the experience of being like a, a Muslim woman with a Western life that, oh, that yes. you ran, yeah. I was interested that like that was entirely personal essay. There was no reporting in it. She hadn't spoken to anyone else. She hadn't done yeah. anything like that. Um, I mean, I, I think a criticism that's sometimes pointed about this kind of journalism is like, Experiential stuff is easy, is kind of an editorially safe bet because the experience has happened. You know exactly what you're getting. Right. Like to send someone out to spend two or three months, like doing a highly reported story. It's a, it's a more of a punt. You know that you're not. Right. You're not going to get that. I mean, I, I, where, where do you see those those? That's things? not why I do it. I do it because of the personal intimacy yeah. uh, of having a first person. And actually, a lot of the first persons, the Muslim story was separate because actually that was very tricky for anybody to write that story for us. Nobody wanted to yeah. go near it. Um, but and usually, it was pseudonymous, right? It was what? It was, sorry? Pseudonymous, it was yeah. anonymous. Yeah. Yep. Um, so you sort that one out rather. It wasn't a pitch coming in. Uh, it was a pitch that came in. From somebody who had never written before, oh. who actually turned out to be an incredible writer, um, and now we will do more work with. Because um, what what I thought was interesting was comparing that to the the sort of sex or rent piece where she had the first person, but then she'd also gone and talked to people. There was like a like a reported element. Well, she's an in-house journalist, well. so yeah. she so she gets first of all a lot of time with it. Yeah. Also, I think with the first person. Um, the Muslim story is slightly different but usually the first person are my team and so you get to know the characters you understand that Jennifer Savin piece what it's going to be like and actually I've always thought that people like you know I do with the Saturday Times you go for certain writers and so actually I always wanted to make stars out of my writers that's why I did um, first person stuff and also I think on first person what it does is that it's much easier to go on a journey and go on a story with them and where which reports do not give you that it can be yeah. quite difficult to, to, to go all the way through a report and of course the job now mm. is to get a reader and readers are not used to reading long form to get them from A to Z and so I found the most effective way to do that is to have a sympathetic um, writer who will take you on that journey so that's that's the only reason yeah. why we I, would do I it I do find I, I love writing um, personal stories and I love kind of personal journalism um, but there is a sense that I felt among other journalists that that is a less worthy form of journalism and I've certainly felt that in response to some of my own pieces that I've done is that do you find that when you're kind of in industry circles you've got to do all of it I was talking about this mm. with my husband the other day I think a lot of people um, well first person is easy right because you don't have to interview anyone it's off the top of your head so you could say oh it's a bit lazy so people who only do that sort of stuff 
um, it's not looked down on, but but people do pigeonhole you and go, well, I'm not going to give them a report because I don't think they can do it. They can only write about their, their themselves. And actually, I would not advise anybody, unless you are an exceptional, exceptional columnist like a Kathleen Moran or Giles Corrin, to write about yourself because actually you start to bore people after a while. Mm. You really have to be an exceptional A.A. Gill, an exceptional writer. Um, you have to do both though because I do think what personal, what memoir stuff has, which I'm a big fan of, it does show the size of your balls in a way because if you are willing to be very vulnerable and open in, in, in memoir pieces, then I have a lot of respect for journalists like that. So, but, but you have to do both, yeah. I think people who only, and I know people like this, they only pitch stuff which is about their life. Um, it's not very outward looking. And so you've got you to try and mix and match it. And do these, do these longer pieces all run online? What's the, the relationship between what's in the magazine? Not or, always, or no. Print? Because I've always been of the mindset that actually you shouldn't give it away, you shouldn't give everything away for free. And those longer form pieces, which cost a lot of money and a lot of time, I'm very, um, well, the whole point of them was they're offering something that online was not doing. And of course there are online um, arenas that now do that. So, so I'm quite protective of that. However, over the last few months, me and Claire, our digital director, we're, because it's all a test, we're now thinking, well, Actually, it's not enough to just put a picture of the magazine on the website and expect, assume people will go. Because, of course, Cosmo readers online are not all Cosmo readers of the magazine. They're not yeah. all on, on Cosmo, Snapchat, Discover. So we used to put up a magazine, and, and again, the arrogant assumption people would see it and buy it. Well, of course, you have to work much harder. So now what we're doing is we're looking at features. We're actually at the brainstorming point with features. We have a meeting with digital, and digital will sometimes go, can you get this for us? Yeah. Um, or what usually happens is Claire will go, we love the sex for rent feature. It's totally right for our audience. And then they'll run it. So you have not separate print and digital? We have separate things. print and digital, yes. And do you think that's a good idea to keep them separate? I mean, nobody knows. It works for us. Really I feel like well. lots of different brands have tried that to everyone's toy trying different L things. Tried to integrate, and then yeah. I mean, I mean, Cosmo was integrated when yeah. I when I first joined. It was pretty integrated. Um, but I remember we had like in the magazine six bylines on a piece, and I was like, I don't understand this. And someone went, Well, it's because we all share. We all do bits on features now. And I was like, Well, my gut well, feeling. A single was, story would have six. Authors, yeah, it was right? a beauty feature, and it had six people um, bylines. And I went, Well, writers are driven like most people by ego, and mm. your byline is everything. So I was very, I actually was very happy for the split. Um, but actually, we're coming together more. We'll never be completely joined, but we'll work together. So if I'm doing a cover. You know, I will talk with Claire and she will go, well, can we get this? Can we do this video? So we're very collaborative. Was there an, ever an issue of kind of snobbery from print to digital kind of things, like features aren't good enough for print, would go on to digital or something? I'd, no, no. There because is that I phrase, edit so ruthlessly right. if it's not good enough. Do, do you edit everything, everything yourself still? Uh, I read every single yeah. thing. I edit. I still edit. I don't edit every single thing, but I edit... Um, a lot of the features mm. um, obviously it's gone through my, my brilliant features director but I like being involved actually that's why I prefer to writing is editing right yeah. do you have any paywall content online like, or is the not on Cosmo no okay. we don't um, so it's either it's either there or it's not there's nothing you can like you can't pay to see no that's right like. that's right um, and you know if you want to buy something else then you buy the magazine um, so yeah but, but you know in America they've started to integrate some of the mm. teams now so Men's Health I think now is gone back to print and digital together. So I think everybody is just trying. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, 
I don't think I was right to run Cosmo Digital as well as the magazine because I had a job to do with the brand, so the events, the magazine, all the communication. And Claire's job was to get, you know, hundreds and thousands, actually millions of eyeballs um, on Cosmo Online, which she has done. Um, we have like 10 million uh, a month. It's very difficult to do both of those, particularly when you're in a real growth period. I do wonder what the future of monthly magazines is in terms of having a web, a daily website that they update every day and being able to run that at the same time. That concerns me. Well, if that's why if you're split, if you have a print yeah. team and you have a digital team, then you can do both. As mm. well as a Snapchat, remember, so you're, up, you're updating. You just need to have quite a big team. You've got to have big teams. Yeah. You've and got to have big teams. Is it a big issue yeah. for even you know, very successful magazines? Yeah, it's, we are lucky. We have... We are well resourced here, yeah. um, both on the print side and on the digital side, and that's you know we found that that that's what you need. What, what's your view on the debates about body image and the role that, that magazines like this play, and how women feel about themselves? Well, I kind of feel that it's always the easy, the, you know, with the scapegoats for everything. It's like all women's magazines, and and women's magazines don't exist in a cultural vacuum. Right. There's the whole world around you. Um, of course, you do have a role to play because women are watching, they're reading it, and, and Cosmo actually has always done a lot. We've always um, used bigger models inside the magazine. We've always been um, diverse with the models we use. Um, which is why I wanted the features to reflect that, to have right. divergent points of view as well. Um, so, yeah, you, you do have a responsibility. But, you know, I think people still saying it's magazines. When you look at things like Instagram, we all have a responsibility to just be completely... I mean, you look at things like Facetune now and... Wait, forgive my ignorance. So, so Facetune is... I mean, is it's that like, many you know, apps. it's like a retouching. That's thing. it. But, but it's more, you know, you can, you can change the shape of your nose, your chin, your jaw, your eye colour, your teeth are what, I mean okay. people look completely different. And the irony is that we're trying to get airbrushing to decrease in That's right, and we're doing it to magazine. ourselves. Yeah. It's interesting isn't it, it's a bit like I always say the example of you have a phone and who knew we human beings would turn the camera on their own faces yeah. and it, you're right, it's like everyone's going no airbrushing but if you put an airbrushing tool in the hands of someone yeah. they're probably going to use it um, so with Instagram, I mean, I actually say on my Instagram bio, this is not my real life. It's not a representation of what my life is like. And that goes, you know, I think we all have a responsibility now. Um, Rankin but it's scary. spoken a lot about that and how, like, we're actually doing it. We're, we're doing it to ourselves much worse than magazines. Are even. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, do we, you retouch in a magazine? No, we do. Um, if, say, someone's got, it's a bad example, but it has happened. If someone's a cover star's got a, you know, like a red spot or you can see okay. we would remove that but we don't retouch bodies i mean we never a blemish have. that would go on its away on its own anyway that's it a blemish yeah yeah um and i think that's fair to the celebrity to be honest i don't right. think anybody's going to want to be on the front of a magazine with a no I, I don't think that is fair although there are some people um actually we haven't had anyone on our cover but I, I also think celebrities have to go I'm, t I'm i'm up for this i want to show my could you imagine um, having someone with acne on the front of the cover and, ha and have it you know having acne on yeah. the cover well I, I suppose it it would depend on who it was I mean you know Tess who went on our cover uh, you know people would always say Tess oh, holiday, uh, this yeah. is Tess Holiday right. you know who's the plus size that's sorry yes who's, who's a plus size model and, and she's you know she's a size 26 um, you can see all of her dimples I mean she's been very vocal there is no retouching of that cover so 
I always say never say never. I think what I am always wary of is when people go, well, would you put someone on acne, would you? Nobody gets to go on my cover unless there is a story behind it. Mm-hmm. And I've always been like that. And actually with, with Tess, it was never, and I've spoken like this, it was never supposed to be about her body. The story was about um, being dirt poor and how you became. She was a mouse burger. She lived in Mississippi. And she became a massive model in spite of being 300 pounds, five foot three, living in a trailer. That was the story. And so that's why I say if there was someone with acne, well, I wouldn't just do it because the culture is forcing me to put someone with acne on the cover. If there is somebody who has a story which is right for Cosmo and they have acne and they want to be seen with it, then yes. Would you ever put a man on the cover? They have put a man on the cover. Uh, Who did they put on the cover? Um, They have put men on the cover. I mean... um, Several times, Boy George was on the cover, um, but there was someone else I want to say, Burt Reynolds, but it wasn't Burt Reynolds. Um, Yeah, I mean, I would never say never. I don't think it would be the full run of the magazine, because I think it would be naive to assume that um, women's magazine putting a man on the cover will sell as well. But Although men's magazines went through this, right? That they would... We had Dylan Jones from GQ on, and he said that when he first took the job, if he'd put a man on the cover, he'd have been... Fired, I think. Really, yeah, and now, yeah. of course, they, now they do it yes, all the time, they, yeah. they do it all the time. Yeah. And so, I but actually, I think men on the cover of GQ sell better than women now. Really? Well, but it's the culture yeah. again, isn't it? So it's like in the nineties, GQ would have been kind of women in raunchy women. Well, so no one wants to bring home was... a magazine with kind of a scantily that nobody wants that. No, no. because they don't want their wife to edit. They get it. judged. But in the nineties, yeah. people did take yeah. those home, and they were on coffee tables because the culture was. You know, I mean, um, Dylan never did this, but Lowe did. It was Joe Guest on the cover. Dylan would have had, you know, whatever the Victoria's Secret model was. Candice, I think. And, yeah. and, that, and that was the culture, whereas now the culture is, well, what does my brand say about me? Mm. And I think having men on the cover or business women on the cover, I mean, we have a business woman on our next cover, um, these say a lot to readers about about who they are. Um, was the, the Tess holiday or holiday? Holiday, or, yeah. Holiday. Was that the first time that I don't that a kind of non-conventionally attractive woman had been on the cover of the magazine? Well, she's very beautiful, but you mean non-conventional as in not not yeah not slim and no, not um, like her maybe. So. Yeah, no. So uh, I think on my fourth issue, I had Rebel Wilson on the cover. Who she was size twenty, I think maybe. Mm. Uh, we had Ashley Graham, now she is a model, but she's a size, or she was when she was on our cover, size 18. Um, and of course we have Tess, so actually we have a history of, uh, we've always put, this is why I didn't think it would blow up in the manner it, it did. Well, was, yes, Piers because, Morgan. well I think he helped, I also think there was a thing, there's obviously a threshold, isn't there, of which people are comfortable. When you're too big. That's yeah. it, and I think they were, well she's too big to be on the cover, but actually having plus size women on our cover, People go, it doesn't sell. Actually, it's always done incredibly well. Is, it, is there a role? I mean, not. It's not just about women's magazines, but the kind of utility of outrage as an editor. Like, if you, if something you do blows up, yes, of course, like oh, it, of course, it, um, it sells. And you had a yes. second piece off the back of the Piers Morgan backlash I saw on your website about the backlash. Oh yes, which is yes. always yeah, a and, and he's still apparently issue. talking about it. So um, <laughs> yes, there is utility in outrage, but it depends how you deal with the outrage. He's on to the Gillette ad now. Oh, I guess he's moved on to the Gillette ad, that's right. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I have nothing against Piers Morgan. I think on some things we would agree, on, on many things we wouldn't agree, and this we didn't agree. Um, but I think, uh, yes, there absolutely is. And, and I think with outrage, 
what you have to do because outrage really is just people wanting to have their say it's a bit like trolls I mean some trolls obviously are completely destructive but I always think with trolls they just want someone to listen to them they just want to get it off their chest which is what outrage people are and I, I'm not against that. I think I think actually there needs to be more dialogue with people you don't agree with. And the wonderful thing about Tess was, and I saw it um, on my own Twitter feed, was people who thought it was absolutely disgraceful and then other people who would, would argue back. And if you left them, they then started... I saw it with one... Um, there were two people who were arguing for days about it. And in the end, they kind of came to a point where they were like, we're never going to agree, but... It, it, I mean, they didn't exactly say this, but it was kind of like it's good to argue with you, and that's how I felt that's with Piers at the end. The of Twitter, surely. It was really interesting, yeah. and that's the point, and that's what journalism should be about. It's both sides of the story. The truth is usually in the middle. Did you consider what Piers said, which was to kind of just reference in your piece that you accepted that maybe it wasn't the healthiest body size? I'm not saying that you should have, but was that was Do that I a Do I agree with him? Yes, because he was like, you could have just put in your piece that she's not a healthy weight but I didn't see and I think I said to him it it was like that wasn't what the story was about the story so you didn't consider it wasn't kind of a tussle for you at the time no I think we made reference to the fact she is 300 pounds I mean Tess herself those that follow her on Instagram can see at 300 pounds she is living her life she's running around she's running after her family she's healthy now 300 pounds on someone else I couldn't say you know I'm not I'm not there to make a, a judgment on that but actually, you have to decide, don't you? I thought Tess is, and I still believe this, Tess being £300, you may say, or not you, you know, the culture may say, well, that's really dangerous. It's not dangerous because actually, and I think Catelyn Moran said this, if seeing that image of her in a magazine makes you turn around and go, I'm now going to be obese, it's the most powerful image in the world. Yeah. But it's not, is it? Because actually, she exists in a world where the message is still that thin. Exactly. She's not going to make be. someone she want to She's not going to, no, no, yeah. no, absolutely not. But what's more important is, um, is there a story which is really worth telling to young women now? And the story of hers was about if you have nothing, you can be a big success. And it was how she did it with nothing or through social media. I would say that is a far more important mm. story to get out there. So, um, yeah, I didn't agree with him. On that note, we're right up against our time limit, so we should draw us to a close. But Farah, thanks for being such a, a gracious and candid guest. You're and very welcome. Wishing you all the very best with all your projects. Thank, Thank you, Farah. That's great. Hello, it's us again. Ellie, what did you think of that interview? It was actually one of my very favourite interviews from the podcast. I think, um, yeah, she was brilliant. I felt like we could have gone on for another hour I had so much to ask her partly probably because I've worked at Condé Nast which is the Hearst rival uh, I had a I had a lot to ask her um, I thought it was really interesting what she said about getting rid of well minimising sex when she arrived at Cosmo in 2015 it's not entirely gone it's not entirely gone but there are less kind of guides to certain things and more kind of how it's more about sex education and Less enlightening. About, like didactic blowjobs. Well, that's it, yeah, yeah. and Karma Sutra excerpts. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Eleanor Halls. Our producer is Nicola Keane, Zara Hankir does our social media, and our score is by Jess Danheiser. You can find us on social media where at Always Take Notes on Facebook and Instagram, and Take Notes Always on Twitter. Uh, and you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do think about contributing to our crowdfunding page on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash always take notes. Thank you.